0: Passage this morning comes from John seventeen, verses one to five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Genesis opens with the words, In the beginning, God created the preeminent word is god not created for creation doesn't define who god is creation does not give god his identity it is god who already has an identity who therefore creates, and creation becomes an expression of who God is. Now why does that make a difference? Because if we start with creation and give God the identity that God in his essence is creator, then we can understand why many believe that All gods are the same because he is the creator. And so each religion identifies a creator and we could look at that and say, well, because the essence is of God is creator, therefore all gods are the same because we all worship a creator. But God's identity is not wrapped up in his creation. He has an identity before he creates anything. And that identity is as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we understand who God is in the very essence as a triune God, it is that God who creates and therefore the fingerprint of that God is on all of creation. All of creation is an expression of who that God is. Therefore, when we understand God and only when we understand the triune God of Scripture will we begin to understand what life is about and why God has us living life the way He wants us to live it. It is He who created, therefore Life is an expression of him. Now, theologians are beginning to see this more and more. They're experiencing, they're espousing it. Uh, Just cite three. Ralph Smith wrote, Obviously, an adequate statement of the Christian worldview must find its center in the Trinity. For the Christian God himself is the heart of the Christian understanding of the world. Michael Reeves, The Trinity is the governing center of Christian belief, the truth that shapes and beautifies all things. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. The triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. Tim Chester. The doctrine of the Trinity is central to how we know God, how we can be rescued from sin, how we understand the life and the mission of the church, and even what it means to be human. And he could go on and on and on. Essentially what I want to do today is first of all, look at God as a triune God to understand Him. And when we understand God, we will then understand life, and I will begin to unpack how life is an expression of that God, and life only makes sense if we have a triune God. Our Father, what we are speaking today, is the depths of the knowledge of you. We will only skim the surface. But Lord, give us that surface today. Not just so we understand you a little better intellectually, but that those truths would resonate in our hearts, that our hearts would beat with you that it would open up our eyes so that we could see life as you meant it to be, that we could put on Trinitarian glasses and see life in a fresh and a new way, and that that will bring us closer to you and help us to walk more closely with you and enjoy the life that you meant us to experience. In Christ we pray, amen. Genesis opens with the words, In the beginning, God created. The Gospel of John starts the same way. And it's not a coincidence. John starts it the same way intentionally because he wants us to be thinking of Genesis 1. And he says, In the beginning, and now, he gives us a greater definition of who that God is, of Genesis 1, who creates. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, we see later in the same chapter, the Word is a reference to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, how can that be that you are both a being and yet along with that being? He's God, but he is with God. And what we see is a beginning of the understanding of the Trinity. That the word is separate. Jesus Christ is separate from God the Father. He's with God. But he is in his person, God himself. So we have here the Trinity, the beginning of the Trinity, Father and Son, both God, but different persons. As Scripture unfolds, we see that there's a third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is developed, defined here by Webster's Dictionary, As the union of three persons or hypostases, if you want to get really theological, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one divinity, one God, so that there are three persons or one God, three or one as to substance, but three persons. Now, this is a mystery. I'm not going to get up this get up here and tell you that. I can explain to you how there's three persons in one essence and one God. I can't. It's it's a bit of a mystery, but it is taught to us in Scripture. And I would expect that God and his being might be beyond something a human being could understand, at least this human being. So it's very natural for me to say, yes, there's going to be things about God I, I can't quite put together. But I see this revelation of God. Uh, Matthew 28 unfolded a little more. When Jesus tells his disciples to go out and to bring the gospel into the world, he says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you have in the name, and then he gives three names. Now, that's not a poor translation of the Greek, Jesus knew grammar very well. He doesn't say names, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He says name because there is one essence but three persons. It's not my task today to go through the rest of Scripture, which we could do to prove the Trinity. What I would like to do today is to help us put on the Trinitarian glasses to see what that means for us in life and how life is an expression of that. And therefore, the greatest questions of life, what's life about? Who am I? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Are all answered in an understanding of a triune God. In the same way, our practices as a church, what is worship? What is prayer? What's evangelism? What's the church? How do we live the Christian life? Are also all answered when we understand the triune god so who is this god and how is he relating to himself from eternity past because john 1 1 says in the beginning way back even before creation from eternity past the word was and the word was with god so what is going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that helps us understand his identity. And we begin to see it, not because there's a passage in Scripture that says, well, this is what was happening between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no such passage. Yet in John 17, Jesus prays. Now realize how important this prayer is. This is the prayer Jesus prays to the Father just before he's arrested. And what he is praying is his desire for what is going to happen and what should happen in and through his disciples. I mean, his heart is, God, take these disciples, make them yours. And yet what you see in that prayer is all that he wants for the disciples is actually found in his very essence as father son holy spirit and so john 17 becomes a window that we can stand next to and look at and begin to see what was going on among the trinity before creation so jesus prays in john 17 24 you loved me before the foundation of the world So what's going on? The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Father loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Father. The Son loved the Father. The the Son loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved. There is this incredible love relationship that has been going on among three persons from all eternity. That's why in 1 John, the author says, God is love. And we say, yes, he is love. He is love because he has always been loving. There has not been in a second that God has not been a loving being because he's been loving Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But can we say that about other gods that people believe in? What I'm saying is, if God were a single person, so you have God, Allah, whatever. But he's just a single person. Whom does he have that he can love before creation? There is no one else there to love. So the essence of a single person God would be self-love. I love myself. So other religions can posit and they can make the statements God is love, but there is no proof of that. There is no possibility of them being selflessly loving of their creation because the very essence of them is self-love. But when you have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have been loving, always loving each other, Scripture can say God is love and we can say amen. That's exactly who God is and then that begins to explain why love is so central to life I've given this illustration so many times some of you will go "Mm." but others you will hear it for the first time very early in my Christian days I was on the airplane i was sitting next to a young woman and I was all excited about my faith and so I got into a conversation about my faith And I finally said to her, the foundation of my life is Jesus Christ. What's the foundation of your life? And she responded, she took a while on this one. And she said, love. And I said, "Uh, isn't that nice? (laughs) Because it made a lot of sense, didn't it? I mean, all you need is love. Love is what makes the world go round. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Uh, Where is the love? Life is about love. She's right. But I didn't know enough to ask the question. If life is about love, why is it about love? Evolution doesn't say life is about love. It says it's the survival of the fittest, the opposite of love. The answer is the reason life is about love is because God is love from before time. There's something else that's going on in the Godhood that our peek into the window of John 17 gives us. It says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So before the world began, there was love and there was a sharing of God's glory. Even in this prayer at the beginning, Jesus says, glorify me, Father, now that I may glorify you. You see, Jesus wants glory so he can give glory to the Father. It's not, just about, it's not about a selfish glory. It's about having that glory so you give it away to the one you love. And so before the world began, there's an eternal glorifying relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit lifting each other up. Another way to look at glory, by the way, is think in terms of value, of treasuring something. Because glory really means of great value. You value them so much, you offer them praise. You offer them your lives. You offer them communion. You offer them your service. That's glorifying. And so they treasure each other. They lift each other from eternity past. So this gives us a little bit of an understanding of who God is as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what does that mean now? For, the way, for, for life itself, for our understanding of life. And it is, gives us a tremendous amount of information to give us a new way to look at life itself. So we ask the question, Why would a triune God who had everything create the world? Think about it. There's love, there's glory. They have everything. So why create? So let me start with the opposite. Why would a unipersonal, a one-person God create the world? And I like to think of it in this way. You are on a desert island. You're all alone. Why would you want someone to join you? You'd want someone to join you because you're lonely. You want someone to talk with. You want somebody who, to love, somebody who would love you, somebody who might value you, somebody who could help you. So if you're all alone, you create because you have a need because you want somebody to love you need somebody to love you back and so there becomes a self-centered reason for creating by the way many in our culture think of God in those terms I remember a time somebody asked me uh, what's your purpose in life and I said my purpose in life is to glorify God and their response was well you have a Narcissistic God. And all I could say is, no, I don't. But I couldn't explain why he wasn't narcissistic. I would say, well, it benefits me too. But you know, they're absolutely right if God's unipersonal. But the mistake is our culture, even though they, even Christians might say he's Trinity, but we don't start with the idea he's Trinity. We start with the idea he's Creator, and you end up with a narcissistic God. Now, think in a different way. You're at a party. You're having the greatest experience at this party. Tremendous joy. Just like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is love, there is glory, there's lifting up. You have the ultimate joy. You don't need anybody else. Why do you invite someone else to that party? The reason? Because you are having such an incredible time. You want others to experience that. It is complete self-giving love. And since the essence of God is love, that's the way he's going to be thinking. This is so great. My love pours out. I'm going to create so others can experience what I'm experiencing. Uh, George Marsden put it this way. It's consistent with the nature of a God who is essentially loving to create a world of beings and communicate the love and delight he had in himself in them. So what does that mean? Again, we go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17 and listen to these words. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Again, Jesus is praying for what he wants these disciples to experience, what he wants you to experience. And he's saying, I want them to experience with us, exactly what we are experiencing with each other. Jesus said, I came to give them life and give it abundantly. What is life but the very life that God has within himself? For us to experience that life, we have to know God. We have to enter into that kind of union where we receive God's love and glory and return it. And Jesus prays in John 17 uh, about the eternal life that he's bringing. And he says, this is eternal life. Not that you get to live in heaven forever. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Do you see, life is about eternal life. And what eternity is going to be about is what has been happening from the inception of eternity we come in to know God in his fullness, enter into the relationship that's within the Trinity itself. And that's what brings us joy and fulfillment. Jesus prays again in John 17. Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things, I'm praying these things while I'm still in the world, so they may have the full measure of my joy within them. You see what Jesus wants? He's boiled it down. What I want for my people is my joy to be filled in them. What's Jesus' joy? The joy of the eternal relationship he's had with the Father. He wants us to experience that. He says it to his disciples earlier. He says, these things I've spoken to you. Jesus saying, my teaching to you, all I am teaching to you, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. And your joy would therefore be complete. See, God wants us to have a life of joy. And his teaching and his coming is to bring us into the joy, not that we think we can create but the joy he has, which is communion and union with God. That's what life is all about. So, when you think of life, it's first about receiving God's love. Receiving his glory, and again, the glory there is the value he gives us. In fact, he gives us a glory because we are created in whose image—God's image. Ultimately, Romans says, "Those whom he foreknew, he called; those he called, he justified; those he justified, he glorified." See, God is about giving us glory, not his his own personal glory that we are glorified like God but we are glorified in holding the image of God himself and so the Christian life is about first receiving and bathing ourselves in the love of God and how much he treasures us and allowing that to fill us so we don't need to turn anywhere else to be filled and you know where that we get filled the most? At the place we see the greatest measure of God's love. At the cross. In the gospel. That's why you hear from this pulpit almost every week preach the gospel to yourselves regularly, every day. Because it's there we get filled with how much God loves us and treasures us. But that's what's happening at the divine party. God's offering his love and his glory. But if a participant in the party also gives it back, right? If you come into a party, you just don't stand there and let everybody come around you. you. You give back to them as well. And so for us to experience the fullness of joy isn't just to sit back and receive. That's where the Christian life starts. But it's now returning that back to God. Loving him. We love because he first loved us. So receive his love. Return that love. Receive how much he treasures and values us and treasure and value him back. The Westminster Greater Catechism asks the question about the purpose of life. It puts it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As you look at that picture of the Trinity, do you see that? Glorify God. Why? Because that's what it, that's the way we experience the fullness of God's divine party. Enjoy Him by receiving His love, receiving His glory, sharing it back, and now experiencing what God has experienced. So when we're asked to glorify God, it's not narcissistic, it's for our benefit to bring us into the beauty and joy. Of what life is all about, I like to use an illustration I've used a couple times here as well, and that is the red. So- uh, the Boston, of course, is the city of champions, right? We've had a <laughs> we've had a number of championships in this three recent uh, World Series, three recent super, uh, super Bowls, an NBA championship, and NFL Stanley Cup. Each time we have a parade. A million people line the parade route. And you know what they're doing along that parade route? They're glorifying the Red Sox. They get in their duck boats or the Red Sox, whatever team it is, the Celtics. And they're all cheering and they're praising, Go, David Ortiz! We love you, David! Now, does anyone sit back and say, oh, How narcissistic those Red Sox are! They're making a million people line up in the streets and cry out praise to them. No, every person is there voluntarily because they want to bask in the glory Of the Red Sox victory they've actually none of them pitched an inning none of them got up to pinch hit they just cheered their team and now because of their attachment and love for the Red Sox they are basking in the glory of God that's what glorifying God is lifting him up because we love him because we are basking in his glory and it ends up serving us and bringing us into an incredible joy and celebration. Now, I've been talking about us as individuals with God. But I look around here and I see that God created other beings. So, how am I to relate to others in the same way that I am relating to God? Listen to what uh, Jesus says. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. So they, may they the disciples be one as Father, I am with you. You see, God designed us to have a Trinitarian experience with Him, but He also designed us to have a Trinitarian experience with each other. Where we pour out love and honor, where we treasure each other as God treasures us. It's one of the reasons, it is the reason He designed marriage. To give us a picture of the greatest intimate union possible physically, emotionally, spiritually, where he says the two will become one flesh. He says the two become one. Let nobody put it asunder. It is a picture, a small picture of the Trinity relationship. The way we are supposed to relate husband to wife is the way the Father, Son, Holy Spirit relate. Giving love, giving glory, lifting each other up, supporting each other, championing each other. And there's another one, this relationship in the Bible. It's called the church. There's one body, but many members. It's what Jesus is praying about in this prayer. Oh, Father, that they, the church, would be one as we are one. And so our relationship with one another isn't simply commands. Those commands are an expression of what it takes to be one and to live as one. It changes our thinking dramatically when we look around at those who come to church and say, my relationship with them is to be like the son's relationship to the father. That should transform us as a church. You see, when we understand the triune God, we begin to see life as it is meant. We understand what life is all about. We understand our purpose. We understand now marriage. We understand the church. And we begin to understand so many questions. The Christian life is not about doing things. It's about a relationship. We often say that Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Why? Because God is a relationship. And that's the only way the Christian life could be, is a relationship of growing and knowing God. The motivation for Christian living isn't... I've got to to get there to God. The motivation for Christian living is I am so loved by God that I live for God. Why? Because that's what's going on in the Trinity. The commandments of God are not a list of rules, kind of like the test of whether you can measure up to God and what he wants for you. The commandments are, Jesus expressed it. Love God with all your heart. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments are an expression of those two commandments. God's commandments are about love. Why? Because that's what God is. Our identity. What's your identity? Who are you? God's identity is... the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who love and glorify each other. You know what your identity should be? I'm the beloved of God. That's Jesus' identity. You know, in the Gospel of John, the author never mentions his own name. He mentions a lot of names, but when he references himself, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. For the longest time I read that, like, oh, he's trying to one-up all the other disciples. I'm the one he loved best. No, that isn't why he's saying it. Your name, in those days in particular, was your identity. He doesn't give his name. His name is, not John, to him his name is the one Jesus loved. Beloved by Jesus when you start with your identity as the one loved by God, your life changes. What is sin? Is sin breaking the rules? If we understand the triune God, we see sin is about breaking a relationship. Sin is really about us not... A, receiving our fulfillment from god but it's about turning to other things to get our fulfillment it's not finding our joy in the divine party it's going after things that we think will give us joy that's why they're called idols that's why sin is called in the bible adultery it's about a breaking a relationship a love marriage relationship with god himself and satan his, his desire isn't, let me wreck as much havoc as I can in people's lives. His desire is to separate you from God's love, to get you to believe God is not good. You cannot trust him to fulfill you. And when he's removed you from God fulfilling you, then he tantalizes you with all the trinkets of the world, which ultimately are the sin as you move after those things. What is prayer? Is prayer about getting things from God? No, prayer is about bringing us into that union with the Father. It's about us becoming so one with God that our prayers end up being, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what is worship? We just described it, didn't we, in the uh, the Red Sox part, uh It's about us attaching ourselves so deeply to God because we have received his love in such a grand way we can't help but explode in celebration of God himself. And we could go on and on. What is evangelism? It's about those who are not in the circle with God. And us reaching out and saying, come into the love of God. Come into what you were meant to be. What is salvation? It isn't getting a ticket to heaven. It's about experiencing God himself and living in that eternal relationship of knowing him. When we understand God, we understand life. And it's the only thing, the only thing that makes sense of life as we know it. That there's a triune God. The first miracle of Jesus was at a wedding. They ran out of wine. And Jesus takes six water pots and turns them into the best wine they had ever tasted. It wasn't a gigantic miracle in the sense that it raised somebody from the dead, gave somebody sight. It was rather minor. It saved a couple from embarrassment. But the power of that miracle and the reason it was the first miracle is Jesus is trying to display to us this is what the Christian life is all about. This is what I come to offer you. I come to offer you a marriage with God. I come to offer you a celebration because there's two meanings for wine in Scripture. One is celebration. By the way, the Lord's table ends with Jesus saying, I will not drink this cup until I drink it with you in the kingdom. I'm waiting for the ultimate celebration to drink this cup with you. Jesus is saying, I invite you into the divine party to experience God to the fullest that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. But as I said, there's two meanings of wine. One is the celebration that Jesus wishes to bring us into. The second is, the cost to enter into that celebration that we experience at the Lord's table. Because the cup also represents the blood of Christ that is shed so that we can come into that celebration. Are you experiencing the Christian life as God intends it? Is it filled with joy or drudgery? It's because, if it's the latter, it's because we're not attaching ourselves to the gospel of Christ and the realization of His love being so great for us. He not only created us, but when we turned our back on Him, when we rebelled on Him, when we spit on Him and crucified Him, He poured out His wine so we could drink the wine of God for all eternity. Our Father. Bring these truths into our hearts. They're in our minds right now. Rattling around. The Lord your spirit can. Bring them deep into our hearts. It's your spirit. that can make them alive. Your spirit that can help expand our minds. To look at all of life through Trinitarian Glasses. May you do that in us. In Christ's name, Amen.